everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey the Rotten Apple Knockrainer. Rotten Apple. Topical. On today's episode, we will be discussing a zero-day vulnerability in Corey's favorite product line. Uh, before that, though, <laughs> we'll give an update from Microsoft. You mean the Quest? Um, you mean my, my, my DJI drones? My racing drones? Legos? Sure. <laughs> you heard me. Uh, before that, though, we give an update on Microsoft's uh, analysis of a security incident they had about a month and a half, two months ago. And then we will end with an update that may or may not spell the end of Android network activity research. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and hack our way in. Haven't done that in a while. Beep boop, beep boop, boop, boop. That's hacking, right? That's how core Weird hacks. 3D things going on the screen on, on 20 different swordfish screens that have nothing to do with the command line. So let's start this week with a update from our friends at Microsoft. Uh, if you remember back in like the second week of July, uh, we talked about on the podcast how Microsoft had thwarted a, a China-based threat actor uh, that had managed to obtain access to, it was like three dozen or so uh, enterprise email accounts for government officials, both in the US and internationally. Uh, back at the time, uh, or right after CISA released a report as well, too, discussing that it was some U.S. federal civilian civilian executive branch employees that were targeted, too. Um, and back then, we didn't know, like, all of the super big details about it. We knew they'd managed to gain a key that let them forge authentication tokens that worked in the enterprise environment. Um, we knew that that key was supposed to only work in the consumer environment. So the Microsoft.com accounts think like your personal Outlook or uh, Xbox Live or whatever. Um, but we didn't know all the details about how they managed to get that key. Well, last week, uh, Microsoft published the conclusion to their analysis into this activity. I wish they tagged with Storm0558 as the threat actor, which Storm meaning something unique or separate from existing ones that they have tracked, but they don't have enough details to officially name it as its own independent threat actor. Uh, but in their blog post, they went through exactly how they think that the threat actor gained access to this consumer signing key and also how they were able to use that key in the enterprise environment too. Um, so I want to actually just read the first couple paragraphs verbatim because they're short and sweet and to the point. Um, and they actually like give a decent amount of information about like how Microsoft has created these environments for their production and just normal user environment and a pretty dang interesting way that this key most likely got leaked. Uh, so uh, in their blog post, they've got a section titled Key Acquisition, and they start by saying Microsoft maintains a highly isolated and restricted production environment Controls for Microsoft employee access to production inc uh, infrastructure includes background checks, dedicated accounts, secure access workstations, and multi-factor authentication using hardware token devices. Control in this environment also prevents the use of email, conferencing, web research, and other collaboration tools, which can lead to common account compromise vectors, such as malware infections or phishing, 
as well as restricting access to systems and data using just-in-time and just-enough access policies. Our corporate environment, which also requires secure authentication and secure devices, allows for email, conferencing, web and research, and other collaboration tools. While these tools are important, they also make users vulnerable to spear phishing, token stealing malware, and other account compromise vectors. For this reason, by policy and as part of our zero trust and assume the breach mindset, key materials should never leave our production environment. So pausing here before we continue on, sounds like Microsoft has basically locked down their main production network where they do like software builds or run infrastructure uh, in a pretty dang strong way on the face of it. Like separate system accounts, um, dedicated hardware for it, uh, extremely phishing resistant MFA using hardware tokens instead of, uh, you know, weaker forms, like SMS based does seem like they've, I mean, it's Microsoft, so you would hope so, but it does seem like they've taken considerations into protecting access within this environment. Like even just, you're not allowed to access your email when you're in it. That's a good move. Certainly sounds good. Certainly sounds like a very hardened environment, which you'd want to have for big critical keys like this. And yet, <laughs> and yet. So continuing on, uh, our corporate or blah, blah, blah. Our investigation found uh, that con a consumer signing key system crash in April of 2021 resulted in a snapshot of a crashed process, which they call a crash dump. The crash dumps, which redact sensitive information, should not include the signing key. In this case, a race condition race allowed condition. the key to be present in the crash dump quote or parentheses, this issue has been corrected. The key materials presence in the crash dump was not detected by our systems, parentheses, this issue has been corrected. We found that this crash dump, uh, believed at the time to not contain key material, was subsequently moved from the isolated production network into our debugging environment on the internet connected corporate network. This is consistent with our standard debugging processes. Our credential scanning methods did not detect its presence, parentheses, this issue has been corrected. After April 2021, when the key was leaked uh, to the corporate environment in the crash dump, the Storm 558 actor was able to successfully compromise a Microsoft engineer's corporate account. This account had access to the debugging environment containing the crash dump, which incorrectly contained the key. Due to our log retention policies, we don't have logs with specific evidence of this exfiltration by the actor, but this was the most probable mechanic by which the actor obtained the key. This is pretty interesting, seeing them actually give out some of this detail. Yeah, I it's, it's deep detail. I mean, I, it's, it's interesting even though the, them admitting that it, this is a theory, a probable theory, but a theory. But anyways, back up. <laughs> yeah, so... I and mean, one of the first things in here is they seemingly have tools where, you know, if they need to debug an issue within the production environment, they are finding and redacting any secrets that should only live within that production environment. Obviously, as we've seen from the, the impact or I guess the uh, exploit uh, involved in this activity, leaking a private key in this case that can sign authentication tokens, tokens is a pretty dang serious deal. And so it makes sense that they'd want to protect it. And it's cool that they've developed applications to not only allow them to debug stuff, but like redact potentially sensitive material. And it ended up being a race condition. So one thing finishing before another suspects it to that allowed that material to be there. Those um, are tend to be hard to find unless you 
they know do. how to find them in code just because lots of things have to happen in the right order. So it seems like the key ending up in the corporate environment, the like non-production infrastructure one, was like a series of multiple layers just happening to fail. Like the race condition that allowed it to be unredacted, the secret scanning system failing to catch it both before it was removed from it and when it was moved into the corporate environment, and then a engineer suffering a compromise that then allowed access to that crash dump. So even with like, I mean, these were all pretty strong layers, but even then, even Microsoft is not perfect when it comes to this. Um, so at least that's one mystery solved, I suppose. And it sounds like they've, I mean, based off their blog posts, they've corrected most of these issues. And I imagine, I mean, it was pretty big egg on their face, all things considered, that someone was able to exfiltrate one of these keys. So it makes sense that Microsoft is taking this extremely seriously. I mean, crap, CISA managed to get Microsoft to change their entire debug audit logging uh, for under licensed users as a part of this as well, too. If you remember right, like CISA only found this because of logs only available to E5 licenses. And after this, one of the big changes was those debug logs are now available to even E3 licenses as well, too. Pretty cool change. Um, so the next bit that they cover in the blog post is how that consumer key was able to access enterprise mail. Um, so in their initial description, they said these are two separate environments using two separate key signing and key verification mechanisms, something that works for creating authentication tokens in the consumer environment, like your Xbox Live account, should not work in the corporate environment for like your corporate enterprise email. Uh, so two paragraphs here. Uh, to meet growing consumer demand to support applications which work with both consumer and enterprise applications, Microsoft introduced a common key metadata publishing endpoint in September of 2018. As part of this converging offer, converged offering, Microsoft updated documentation to clarify the requirements for key scope validation, which keys to use for enterprise accounts and which keys to use for consumer accounts. As part of a pre-existing library of documentation and helper APIs, Microsoft provided an API to help validate the signatures cryptographically but did not update these libraries to perform this scope validation automatically. Parentheses, this issue has been corrected. The mail systems were updated to use the common metadata endpoint in 2022. Developers in the mail systems incorrectly assumed that the libraries performed complete validation and did not require additional in issuer scope validation. Thus, the mail system would accept a request for enterprise email using a security token signed with the consumer key parentheses, this issue has been corrected using the updated libraries. So it sounds like this boiled down to Microsoft has a arguably very complex code base with just how large of a company they are. They maintain what they're trying to separate into two separate entities while not redoubling efforts and remaking the wheel every time they have to like create a module. And it sounds like it was just a because of that complexity and like lack of communication or something. It caused developers in one environment to not realize they needed to implement some additional validation on their side that wasn't controlled by that common library in there. This one's like, I mean, obviously they fixed it. They found it now. It feels like when you're managing as complex of an environment as Microsoft is, that's got to be a really tough one to just like 
always 100% stay on top of like these, this kind of issue is going to pop up from time to time. I think. I think so. And I think they actually handled it pretty well, by the way, excuse my dogs. <laughs> uh, they were my security You're... alert for a mailman, uh, an unauthorized visitor. Your dogs are always excused. They are adorable. But I mean, so all things considered, I going back, I think Microsoft has done a fantastic job with transparency around this. Like yeah. being able to access arbitrary enterprise email accounts is an extremely serious issue, especially when they were targeting government accounts in this case. But, you know, it happens like this type issues like this will continue to happen. And Microsoft's response has been nothing short of stellar, in my opinion. Well, I agree. You know, this was great. I almost feel like it's a reaction. Remember in the last podcast when we talked about this, they were pretty transparent with the issue, even though we still didn't know how the key leaked because they didn't know. But I feel like they, they almost responded to us saying, we hope they release that extra detail for the community to learn. And lo and behold, they did. So I'm starting to think that Microsoft like listens to this podcast because we also suggested, you know, our one gripe was the the logs that were only available with extended yeah. licensing. And they fixed it. They fixed that too. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds pretty cool. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but maybe, maybe there's others that come to the same conclusion as we did. <laughs> yeah. Like all things. Although, just, like, I, I just like to think they're listening to the four four three. I think they are. Uh so like this type of issue. I, I can't imagine this is going to be a common recurring problem for Microsoft. So having access to that logs is great. Maybe you'll spot other suspicious activity, but it's not going to be every day that Microsoft loses a authentication material signing key and you have to stay on the lookout for unsuspected apps authenticating into your network. Um, but anyways, cool seeing that loop closed on that one. Cool. Uh, so moving on also last week, uh, Corey's shaking his head because this is where I get to have fun. Uh, <laughs> Citizen Lab published an article describing, believe it or not, a vulnerability in iOS. No, uh, it's bulletproof. So, Never. Here's like one week after Corey saying that, you know, Apple is perfectly secure and unhackable and nothing uh, can ever go wrong. That's not what I said. The I was more talking about everything. the walled garden. <laughs> And by the way, uh, when we uh, talk about this, this is a multi-million dollar vulnerability by a group of a-holes. If I had a beep button, I would use something stronger. A hundred percent. But let's bring Corey crashing back down to earth with reality. Uh, so Citizen Lab published an article describing a zero-click vulnerability that they found actively exploited in the wild to deliver the NSO group's Pegasus spyware. Uh, they identified it while analyzing the device of an individual employed by an unnamed a uh, Washington, D.C.-based civil society organization with international offices. Um, they've named this vulnerability BlastPass, which when I first saw this title from them, uh, when I saw BlastPass, I thought, oh, what happened to LastPass now? I know. Uh, I was thinking Apparently completely unrelated. <laughs> um, so they gave it the name because it targets the wallet passes feature in iOS, uh, which is used for sharing things like, you know, when you can download a Ticketmaster ticket onto your wallet or save your credit card to your wallet. It, the framework that it uses for this is something called PassKit. And so that seems to be where the name came from because you can blast your way right through using PassKit. Um, they found that it uh, specifically targets or it, the exploit comes by attaching a malicious uh, PassKit pass 
to an iMessage that contains a carefully crafted image file within it. Um, so they didn't give all the details about it, but passes, they're effectively just a signed bundle that contains like a JSON file with all of the details and text and uh, metadata around that pass, a set of images so that you know it looks like a Ticketmaster ticket with the image of the artist on it or whatever, um, and then some optional localizations as well too. So presumably when iOS receives one of these passes, it does some parsing in order to display like a preview of the pass or when you load it into your wallet to show the pass itself. And apparently this zero day vulnerability uh, involves the way that iMessage previews or handles a uh, message that comes in with one of these passes as an attachment. Um, so they didn't publish all the details. Uh, but Apple did issue two CVEs, uh, CVE 2023-41064 and CVE 2023-41061. Uh, pausing there for a second, where's 062 and 3? Were those just not patched yet? I'm assuming they found these relatively in close proximity, so now I'm curious. Uh, anyways, the first one, it's described as a buffer overflow that could lead to code execution, and the second one is a validation issue that could lead to code execution. And as of now, Apple has issued emergency patches about a week after Citizen Lab first discovered this activity. If you've got an iOS device, uh, you should have a pending security update that you may want to install relatively quickly. Um, but I guess like backing up, so we've seen a lot of issues in mobile devices. It seems like a lot of these zero, well, almost all zero click issues involves some form of a malicious attachment sent via text message to a victim. Because uh, your phone, whether it be Android or iOS, does a lot of like pre-parsing when it receives that message so that it can prepare the message for you or whatever, maybe handle the attachment gracefully. Sometimes it automatically downloads the image if it's an image. Um, and we've seen things like stage fright on Android where uh, attacks can abuse that in order to gain code execution on the system. So this is just another one of those style of attacks, this time involving a, I don't want to say new, but a new-ish method compared to just, you know, an image processing. This one's using a pretty complex system with the whole wallet and pass kit functionality too. Um, so Citizen Lab and Apple did confirm that if your phone is in lockdown mode for iOS, it does mitigate the attack. Now, Apple only recommends lockdown mode if you're the potential target of what they call extremely rare and highly sophisticated cyber attacks. So things like a government uh, employee. I would say almost no one idea. uses it. It's like it's it's going to make it so you don't get a lot of images in your messages. You're going to, it's going to slow down web browsing. FaceTime may not work right or, or will work right, it but may block things unless you've talked talk to folks. So it's I think it's cool that they have this mode, like if you're a secret service agent or something or, or just a politician in another country. But uh, I, I suspect this mode is very irregularly used. It's certainly not for like the everyday user, even someone in a like potentially sensitive role or job. It definitely seems like it's targeted towards like government officials and maybe journalists working in like a hostile foreign nation that might be victim to one of these mercenary spyware attacks. Um, and not just for, you know, the random person, even if you are concerned about security or privacy, like it does 
like you hinted at a few of those, like most ma message attachments are going to be blocked other than some very specific uh, images or video files, uh, disables a whole bunch of web browsing technologies, which will make websites not load correctly, disables a lot of external fonts as well, too, since that's a common attack path. Um, incoming FaceTime calls are just straight up blocked. Sharing albums is just straight up blocked. And the list goes on of just all the features it disables to lock down the device. Um, so not a recommended mitigation tip for most people listening to this podcast. But if you do happen to be a journalist in like Saudi Arabia, it's maybe something you want to look into. Um, but the last like big piece, so it was NSO Group yet again uh, in their toolkit going after a government official, this one based in the United States, yet again, this is getting pretty dang annoying that uh, this type of activity continues. I, I'm still very uncomfortable with private organizations selling spyware tools like Pegasus to uh, anyone because we keep seeing them abused in instances like this. Like, yeah, I know Peg or Pegasus, NSO Group's whole thing is, oh, we sell to law enforcement to go after criminals. But then you see like journalists or people working for nonprofits or even just government officials being targeted by it all the time. And it's just kind of gross. I wish we could. Uh, and actually, second point, I thought like. Wasn't like NSO Group specifically the target of a whole bunch of like crackdowns in response to when Pegasus's doors came off? Like I thought even the country of like Israel was effectively going after them and forcing them to close down and pop up under a different name. I was surprised to see them still in the uh, malware creation game, but nah, whatever. Um, so moving on to the last disappear. one, I agree as well. Uh, so continuing on the Apple sucks and Android's amazing bandwagon. Uh, <laughs> uh, like Android, Android has never had that class of vulnerability which could probably get delivered through an app and the apps I'm kidding. But yes, they actually have had texting vulnerabilities too. I'm sure you could Stage find some zero click Androids. <laughs> Anyways, no more Anyways. fanboyism. We actually think both need good security. Agreed. Uh, so speaking of good security, uh, Google is just about wrapping up the beta for Android version 14. Uh, and there's an ETA release sometime later this month in September. Uh, it's got some cool new usability features, some accessibility features. Like you can zoom in fonts even more, which might help people like Corey. Uh, you can also, <laughs> uh, applications can now use the camera light as a notification mechanism, uh, which is also interesting as well, too. Uh, there's a brand new permission in there. Uh, for scheduling an exact alarm, where now if an application isn't a clock or a calendar, it has to explicitly request this permission in order to schedule an alarm on the phone, which is interesting. But you don't care about all those. What we care about are some of the security and privacy features and kind of one big one in specific. When it comes to security features, though, before we go in on that big one, uh, one big thing they're changing is it's now going to block all apps built for Android 5.1 or older. So up until oh. now, you could run super old Android apps. They're all backwards compatible. All the APIs still work on modern Android phones. They will look and run like crap, but they will still at least function. Um, but Google notes that uh, malware often targets these older API levels. 
that don't take advantage of some of the more modern security and privacy protections that the newer applications do. So if I develop an, a malicious app and I say that this is built for Android 5.1, some of the newer APIs aren't online, uh, which means that I can get around some of the security or privacy controls. Uh, as of Android 14, anything 5.1 or older will be blocked for new installs. Existing installs will continue to work. But you know, I'm all for backwards compatibility, but Android 5.1 came out like a decade ago. So it makes sense to kind of start closing the door on some of these weaknesses. Uh, there's also some additional privacy permissions around photo and video sharing. So now instead of granting permissions to the whole album, you can grant permissions to in an app for just specific photos or videos which is kind of neat. Um, and then the last small security feature is you have the option of disabling animation animations when you're entering a pin code to unlock your phone. So if you're not using biometrics and someone's shoulder surfing, they can't see the numbers light up on your phone as you click your pin to enter it in. But those aren't the ones I want to talk about. Uh, there's a widely uh, undocumented or not widely documented change coming as a part of uh, Android 14 and how Android handles CA certificates after the update. Uh, so back in Android 7, which was 2016, Google split out CA certificate management into two locations. There was a fixed list in the system level uh, of CAs that's managed by the operating system vendor, so either Google themselves or when Sony, or not Sony, uh, when Samsung makes their fork of Android, it's managed by them in that case. Uh, and then there's a user modifiable list that only works with apps that specifically opt into it. So most web browsers opt into this. This is why in Android, you can import a new CA certificate for effectively allowing you to man in the middle of your connection and your web browsers will follow that. But some of your applications won't. Many applications use cert pinning. So even if you do the system level one, it still won't work either. Um, but apps have the ability to opt in or not from that user managed CA certificates. Um, users can still root their device and modify that system level CA store. It's located in slash system slash Etsy slash security slash CA certs. Uh, in practice, it's still kind of difficult. You have to either remount the entire system directory as read, write and reboot, or mount a new temporary file system as read, write over top of that, and then modify the certificates in there. But this was a really common method for security researchers to be able to do system wide um, man in the middling of encrypted connections while they're trying to research into the communications from applications to web servers. Well, it's difficult to do manually to do all the mounting and making sure you set all the permissions. I think there's a script. So, you know, these researchers created a script. So once you root your device, it's literally run a script and you can add things Correct. much easier. So there's scripts available. Difficult. There's, yeah. It's well documented by tools like MITM proxy that are commonly used in this. So it's one of those where for a untechnical user makes it difficult to mess with, which is good. But for a technical user and specifically a security researcher, it's doable, which is also good. Also good. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so in Android 14, though, they're adding a new security feature that on the face of it is actually a good thing, in my opinion. Uh, it allows for remotely updating CA certificates outside of a full on operating system update. So it's moving the CA certificates out of that core operating system image and into a separate updatable component that will then allow Google to issue faster CA, CA updates 
uh, without needing to wait for like an over-the-air update of the whole on operating system, which like, I don't know what Apple does, but on Android, I get one of those like once a month. And that's only because I'm on like a well-supported phone. Unsupported phones get them even less frequently. And if you can only update once a month for CA certificates, makes it more difficult to revoke trust of one that starts doing naughty things. Um, so, and actually, this is kind of similar to what we did at WatchGuard with the Firebox appliance a few years ago. Used to be to update our built-in CA certificate bundle on the Firebox, we'd have to issue a new firmware update. Now it's its own separate mechanism that kind of piggybacks or uses the same um, mechanisms we use for like signature services updates for security services to let us update that more frequently as well too. Um, so certificates as of Android 14 are no longer going to be in that system directory. And instead they're read from a new location called slash apex slash com.android.conscript slash CA certs. Um, so apex, if you're not familiar, uh, it stands for Android Pony Express containers. Um, they're basically updatable system components that Google delivers as a signed and immutable container. Um, they're typically updated through the Google Play Store. You can think of, uh, I think their TLS library is included in there. Now CA certificates are there. Um, but they are cryptographically signed by Google, meaning you can't just go in and modify the insides of that container because the signature in that case will no longer be valid and it'll fail to run or at least be blocked by the operating system. Uh, Google somewhat understandably doesn't really publicly document how these Apex containers work like at all. And it turns out they've got some even more thorough protections as well, too. Uh, for example, they can expose their mounted content directly to an individual process, which means that it's basically impossible to modify them manually, uh, even with full root on the Android device. Uh, as an example, uh, if you tried mounting a temporary file system over that Apex path or whatever, uh, even though like in your file system, if you're going through like ADB or some other shell on your Android device, even though that would show, you know, your new temporary file system, when an application goes to access that, it'll use the Apex version and not your temporary mounted one. You're also unable to remount those Apex directories as read-write. They will always remount as read-only, meaning you can't modify them. Um, and even unmounting the entire directory does not prevent these Apex delivered certificates from working with applications. So on the face of this, like this is, I think, a good thing overall in that now Google can deliver more regular certificate updates uh, at faster intervals if they need to quickly untrust a CA certificate that isn't behaving. But this does directly impact researchers' ability to do security research into Android applications. It's seemingly, as of right now, looking like it's almost impossible to override this activity at a system level on the Android device, even with root, which is a tough pill to swallow, in my opinion. And then there's even like privacy focused branches of Android too, things like Graphene OS uh, and Lineage OS, where it's not quite clear like how this is going to work with them because they still rely on play services for some of their activities. And now if CA certificates come from there, like it might make it more difficult for you to research on those privacy-focused ones as well, too. Uh, so I don't know. I, I don't really have a like a takeaway from this other than if you're a Android security researcher, your job is going to become more difficult if you upgrade to Android 14. And it feels like a 
don't know. So Corey, you and I are trying to stamp out convenience over security every chance we can. And this definitely feels like a security over convenience thing, a make it easier to update CA certs, even it makes it less convenient for a researcher. But this will negatively impact our ability to find vulnerabilities uh, easily in Android applications. It's a hard one, but I think we're going to come up to like as a security purist. I I agree with you that this is mostly a good thing on the surface. Like I I, I think they should have full control of the certs and quickly revoking ones for when they do mess up too. Like the example given. So I I generally like why they're making their certs, you know, have to be there and and giving updates that only they can change really quickly and not giving folks access to modifying that much. But the researcher question is a big deal. It's a, it's a big one. Uh, I, I, I struggle on where I land on this because on one hand, I think we're getting more and more to sophistication that you need this more locked down system. And these lockdown systems are really under manufacturer and vendors control. I mean, we talk about Apple's walled garden, even with the TPM. That goes so bad that you don't get the right to repair because they they're trying to hide so much of their systems and details that they make it actually hard for you to do anything. I, I, I'm stretching with right to repair, but you get it. The more you lock down for security reasons, the less and less power everyone else has. Uh, same issue with Epic versus Apple, right? I mean, uh, you can see why they want to close Garden. You can see that update mechanisms, web-based update mechanisms, have been used by malicious actors to take a perfectly legitimate application and make it malicious. And yet Epic is right that it kind of sucks that Apple has control of what you can do and sell uh, on their marketplace because of all these these features under the guise of security. So I don't know the answer. Uh, I think it's smart for now. I, I hope researchers find a way around it to do their research despite this. But the hopefully it's is, hard for them because if it's enough roadblocks for them, that at least means these protections are still putting the roadblocks for the attackers. Yeah. And the good news is it's not the immediate death of Android application research. You don't have to do all your research on Android 14. You can use Android 13. Like most applications for Android aren't built for the targeting the latest version of Android. They're built targeting something like decades old, not decades, but at least years old for backwards compatibility. In fact, I can't think of any app I've used that only works on the absolute bleeding edge version of Android. And so in theory, you should still be able to use an older version to do research in those apps, but it does prevent research into like system level, like operating system level inclusions. Like if I wanted to look into what Samsung was doing in their funky version, their fork of Android that I have on my phone. If I update to Android 14, I lose a lot of my ability uh, to do network-based analysis on that, unfortunately. So it's tough. I would like to see a, like a, I mean, crap, Android is the world of, we allow you to shoot yourself in the foot if you jump through enough hoops in order to get there. Like it's not Apple with the closed walled garden. Like they do have a lot of toggleable options in there to enable or disable some protections. I'd like to see a difficult to get to, difficult to turn on toggle feature that could enable developers to bypass some of these uh, mechanisms and allow them to continue to research. I mean, crap, if you remember, Corey, when's the last time you ever um, unlocked the bootloader or enabled debugging access on your Android phone? Was 
when's the last time you had an Android phone? <laughs> well, actually, recently when my iPhone crapped out for a second, I got Mint Mobile okay. on an Android phone. Uh, the debugger, I actually, ADB, I unlock a lot to sideload. And if you get me to Android devices, I'm probably in debug developer mode to connect ADB on my quests on my, I do use Android tablets more regularly than Android phones. So I'm in debug well, think, mode uh... often. I'm trying to pull it up on mine because it's slightly different on modern versions. But if you remember, the way to enable like debug mode on Android devices used to be hit this one button in the menu five times in quick succession to turn it on, which I thought was a good like obscurity layer to prevent like unknowing users from enabling it and only allowing developers that are explicitly looking for that feature to turn it on. And I think that's the level of like obscurity mechanism we'd want for something to bypass this so that typical users can't shoot themselves in the foot, makes it a little more difficult to social engineer them into doing it as well, too. Not impossible, obviously, but a little more difficult uh, while still allowing a security researcher to bypass this new CA certificate handling mechanism at the, the system level. That would be nice. But as of yet, it is not in the beta version of Android 14 that is due to release imminently. So we'll see what the re yeah. the researchers maybe they'll start complaining and we'll see how Google reacts. We'll see. And uh, I guess to close it out, isn't Apple's like iPhone event next week? Uh, iPhone 15 release day. I think they're going to be disclosing it like next Monday or Tuesday or something. So maybe by the time you listen, I've to this been podcast, waiting, man. Before I'll my last a, one, before I had to get a temporary iPhone 12, I've had this iPhone 11 Pro Max forever waiting for the darn USB-C. And I think I saw a recent leak that all but confirms it. So I could that care less about thing. Apple's new features because it's just going to be more processor and more memory and a slightly better camera. Boring. But thank God for Europe forcing them into USB-C. I'm sick of Apple tax on lightning cables. That was the one hard blocker for me, preventing me from making the switch. And if that's gone now, then maybe someday soon I will become an Apple guy. Who knows? Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, or if you just want to see pictures of Corey's dog, uh, you can reach out to us on Twitter or X or whatever it's called. I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey is at SecAdept. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. Thanks again for listening. And you will hear from us next week. Now go pet the dog.